Welcome back. We are in Romans chapter 4. So this will get us about a quarter of the way through this book of Romans uh, tonight. And tonight, you want to think in terms of this probably one of the very most important doctrines of the entire Christian faith. It's a doctrine of justification by faith alone. It really separates Christianity from all the rest of the world's religions that have a doctrine of works involved with them. Uh, all the other world religions have some sort of teaching that tells you how to climb your way up by your merits to God, where tonight you're going to hear that God climbed his way down to us, um, to meet with us. So this is one of the great chapters of Justification by Faith Alone. I'll be referring to Galatians 3 tonight as well, which is, I think, even a clearer description of this doctrine. Um, and after we open in a word of prayer, what I'm going to do is kind of recap the first three chapters to make sure we're following along. We want to make sure we keep this flow of Paul's understanding going strong. So let's open in a word of prayer and, and we'll begin. It's Father, it's in Jesus' name that we come to you. And Lord, uh, we're thankful that you're quick to forgive our sins, Lord, when we ask, and and just to fill us with your spirit when we ask. And we ask for both of those tonight, that your word would be understood, Lord, that we'd hear from you and we would hear and understand and, and be fed, Lord, to be healthier Christians and uh, a great benefit to you and your kingdom, so that you would be pleased, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. So chapter one, we had the chapter that Paul said he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for all who believe. And then he immediately broke out into here's why the diamond of the gospel shines so brightly against that black velvet of our sin. Because the rest of Romans one talks about the wrath of God being on the head of everybody who suppresses the truth and their unrighteousness. Chapter 2, he made sure that we knew that both Jew and Gentile are under this wrath. We've all sinned. There's nobody who's not under that judgment. Chapter 3 begins with, the first half of chapter 3, is that God's judgment upon our sin is absolutely righteous. It's an absolutely perfectly righteous judgment. And then the second half of chapter 3 talks about um, yet God's righteousness is made available to us for our judgment, that our judgment would be based upon his righteousness upon us rather than our own merits. So we started to see at the end of chapter 3 that even the Old Testament spoke about this justification by faith alone. And not many people attribute the Old Testament with the teaching of you're saved by faith alone. Because we have so many instances of sacrifice, don't we? We have 613 laws that are being taught. We have the Ten Commandments that are being trying to be followed. And constantly, especially if you're reading through the Torah, you see all of these prescriptions for what animals and how many of the animals, and it's constant shedding of blood, shedding of blood, shedding of blood. And 
yet the Old Testament at the same time was teaching that you're saved by grace through faith alone. It was kind of disguised in the Old Testament and pretty much revealed in the New, but it's not that it was just true in the New and not true in the Old. So I was thinking about an Old Testament example to give you to make that point that Old Testament people were saved the same way New Testament people are saved, by faith. And, and Romans chapter 4 is largely going to be about that. And there are several examples that I, I thought of. Some of them I couldn't remember if I already shared with you in the first three weeks. And as I asked my wife, she didn't know. So I don't know if she's listening or not. But, but <laughs> she is now. That's good. Okay. So, um, so uh, I think this one is, is, is a good example. Being saved by grace through faith alone in the Old Testament. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned and God puts the curse upon them, you see, when he curses the woman, it said what the woman did was she saw that the fruit was good to eat. And what she did at that point is she took the fruit, she ate it, and she gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now that same phrasing appears only one other time in the Bible, and it's at the Last Supper. And the Bible uses the same phrasing to say Jesus took the bread, which is his broken body. He took it, he ate it, and he gave it to his apostles who were with him, and they ate. So that same phrasing is used there, which to me points to the fact that the broken body of Jesus, represented by that bread, is the forgiveness overcoming the curse of Eve. So she took, ate, and gave to her husband, and sin and death came. Jesus took, ate, and gave his broken body, and he's overcoming that that curse that Eve brought. And <clears throat> he does the same with Adam's curse. Because the curse upon Adam, we read that God says to Adam, when you bring forth bread from the earth, you're going to do it through, first of all, he's already made shamefully naked. And then when he wants to bring forth bread from the earth, he'll do it through the sweat of his brow and thorns and thistles will grow to frustrate his work of doing that. Well, in John 6, Jesus declared that he's the bread of life. So how does Jesus bring himself forth as the bread of life to us? Well, he'll do it through the shameful nakedness of Adam on the cross. And he'll do it through the sweaty brow of Gethsemane with the thorns and thistles that frustrate his work worn upon his head as a crown. So he's taken the full brunt of Adam's curse as well. The nakedness, thorns and thistles, the sweaty brow. And what does that mean, what he's doing? He's bringing forth himself forth as bread from the earth. It's exactly the curse against Adam. So he overcomes the curse of Eve. He overcomes the curse of Adam. And as the curse of Adam and Eve brought the sacrificial system that served as a shadow, Paul says. It was a type or a shadow of the reality, which is Christ. And so when we get Christ, we're not going to crucify him over and over again as a sacrifice. He's, his sacrifice is going to be once for all time. And so what do we do today now that that sacrifice happened 2,000 years ago? Well, Jesus answered the apostles' question about the works that they were to perform and do, as good Jewish men would want to do for God. And Jesus said, the work for you to do is to believe on the one that God has sent. So the whole system of works gets wrapped up in this word believe or have faith. And that's what this chapter is going to cover uh, today. 
Now, so <clears throat> chapter 3, I just want to read the last paragraph of chapter 3, because chapter 4 picks right up on it. And as Paul introduced the righteousness of God to us, opposed to the sin of the Jew and the Gentile, now this righteous God has been revealed to us. He says in verse 27 of chapter 3, where is boasting then? It's excluded. We have nothing to boast about. It's, it's, God did all the work. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not a God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the un uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So now to make this point, he breaks into chapter 4. And he's going to bring up Abraham. Now, if you've got the notes, which there should be a barcode available to you guys uh, online and in person here to uh, get these notes. You see, I've come up with, I gave you four reasons why I think Paul chose Abraham as his example. So as Paul wants to do this doctrine of saved by grace through faith, he picks Abraham to make his point. And in verse 1 he says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. So he makes a point that it wasn't any work that he did, but it was simply that he believed God and that was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, I think he chose Abraham, as you see in these four points. One, because Abraham lived 2,000 years before Paul wrote this letter, demonstrating that righteousness came before the time of Christ. So Abraham was so ancient to the time of Christ, it couldn't have been the work on the cross that Abraham believed and was counted to his righteousness. So there was faith available to the Old Testament people. Second reason I think he told Abraham, chose Abraham, because he lived several hundred years before Moses. So now we can't look at the law that he's following and say that that made him righteous because he didn't have the Old Testament law yet. That was going to come hundreds of years later through Moses. Third reason, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans are all these theological points that are being made. Now Paul gives us a flesh and blood person to look at. He says, we've talked about a lot of theology of sin and forgiveness in these first three chapters. Now let me give you an actual person and demonstrate through his life uh, justification by faith alone. And then Abraham, the fourth point, was largely considered to be the most righteous man in all of Jewish history. So he's taken the one that's at the top of the ladder of who's considered righteous and saying it's not because of what he did. Now, there's a lot of apocryphal books around in Paul's day that touted that Abraham was righteous due to his works. So Paul's going directly against these rabbinical teachings from the apocrypha, mostly, that stated various verses about Abraham uh, deserving this righteousness of God. And so Paul is going to be pretty emphatic about that's not correct. It's not correct. So 
what shall we say about Abraham? It says, Abraham believed God and was accounted to him as righteousness. So one of the things I want you to note is the book and chapter where God told Abraham that he was righteous, that he credited him with righteousness. And it was in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, the 15th chapter. Now that's important to remember because Abraham was credited with righteousness as early as Genesis 15. He wasn't given the covenant of circumcision until chapter 17. So you can't point at circumcision for, to say that he was made righteous. And he, did, he wasn't asked to sacrifice his son until chapter 22. So it had nothing to do with the sacrifice of Isaac. had nothing to do with circumcision. The other two things that Abraham's really known for, this happened before those things. This happened in Genesis 15. So we can't look to those things. He was already credited with righteousness before circumcision, before the sacrifice of Isaac. Now, I think this is a good time to turn to Galatians chapter 3. And I'm going to quickly go through probably the whole chapter here quickly because Paul says in Galatians 1.8, Paul says in Galatians 1.8 that if you get any other gospel other than the gospel I give you, he says even if an angel from heaven gives you a gospel different from the gospel of Jesus Christ that I'm giving you, tell him he's anathema. He's damned for it. There is no other gospel. And I think that's how Islam came to us, quite frankly. Muhammad claimed that he was given another gospel from an angel. And, and, and Muhammad had Galatians 1.8. This was written 700 years before Muhammad. So he knew that he was to tell that angel he's anathema for giving a different gospel. And he didn't do it. Just like Adam and Eve had authority over the animals. And when an animal says you could be like God, they were to drive that animal out of the garden, that serpent. And they didn't uphold their role, just like Muhammad didn't uphold his role. So Paul says in Galatians 1.8, any other gospel other than this gospel, even if it comes from an angel from heaven, you tell him he's anathema. This is the only true gospel. Now with that, that was Galatians 1.8. Now in chapter 3, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? It's one thing you got to ask yourself. When you hear of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, does that just strike you as true? It's historical fact. I know he died and rose again. Okay, that's evidence of the Spirit in you. He says, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Remember the Pentecost event? Were they performing works of righteousness that the Holy Spirit came upon them? They're just hanging out, talking, and it came upon them. They're like, my goodness, what just happened, right? Okay. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham, Paul loves to go to Abraham, doesn't he? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. <clears throat> now, how radical was that to say in the first century? He's saying to first century people, it is not the descendants, the family tree of Abraham that are Abraham's children. 
And it's all who believe God the way Abraham believed God are now Abraham's children. So this room is filled with Abraham's children, correct? This room is filled with Abraham's children. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, And you, all the nations of the earth, will be blessed. That's Genesis 12. See how early this stuff is? Gentile faith was mentioned by God in Genesis 12. Unbelievable. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So then those who are of the faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Not with believing Abraham, what Abraham says. He's being called believing Abraham here. That's the nickname Paul gives him. He's believing Abraham. Okay? For as many as are of the work, are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, curses everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So if you want to do the law, it says you got to do all the law all the time. No mistakes. Any of you still in the game? Okay. Can't do it. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. There's the Habakkuk verse. Okay. The just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So in other words, you have to act out the law all the time. It's not a faith journey. If you're trying to say you're good because you're a law follower, you have to be perfect, and there's no faith involved with that. It's just your performance, correct? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. And that, of course, would be the tree of the cross, correct? Paul likes to call the cross a tree, and I think he's always thinking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life from the garden. Because Paul will paint the picture, the scriptures paint the picture that the cross is both of those trees. For you and I, it's the tree of life. We eat of it and live forever. For Jesus, it was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He knew evil very well on that cross, didn't he? He knew my evil. He knew your evil. Okay, He became that curse for us. That the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it's confirmed, nobody annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Now this is a fascinating point Paul makes and very important for understanding the Scriptures. He says... To Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So he said the promises to Abraham went to Abraham and Jesus. So how do we say we're recipients of the promise if Paul says it's only one seed that gets the promise, it's Jesus? You become in Christ, Right? Christ in you, you in Christ. He's your bridegroom, you're his bride. Isn't it true that brides and bridegrooms are supposed to share in everything, correct? So you married into this inheritance when you got saved. You married into the inheritance of Christ. And, I, and this I say, 
that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it's no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Okay, so he didn't say, here's a law. If you fulfill the law, then you get the, the blessings. He says, no, I promise you. And the only way you'll blow it is say, I don't believe you. Okay, so what's the purpose of the law then? Well, I'm going to save us a little bit of time and tell you uh, what Martin Luther said, which is, it's to point you to Christ. How? Well, look at the very end of verse 25. Look at verse 25 of Galatians 3. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So what does Paul say the law is there? A tutor, right? It, it's, a, it's a schoolmaster, I think some of your versions say. Okay, It teaches you. And what is the law teaching you? It teaches you the heart of God. He doesn't want you killing or committing adultery or lying and things like that. He doesn't want you doing that. It shows you the heart of God. But even more than that, it shows you that you cannot be a law follower. You will be a lawbreaker. When we look at the law, we go, I can't do it. Paul said, the, I didn't even know I was a coveter until I read the law. It said, do not covet it. And then I realized that law just killed me. And I didn't even know I was guilty of it until I read the law. So I was a walking dead man without realizing it. And then when they presented the law to me, I realized that law killed me because of the wages of sin is death. And so he'll say later, who will rescue me from the body of death? And of course, he'll answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right. We'll, we'll study. I like Galatians 3 for this teaching because you can hear the energy and the, how, how Paul is urgent to teach. You're saved by faith alone in Galatians 3 because what he said in Galatians 1.8. You're getting a false gospel in, in Galatia here. They're getting a Judaizing gospel of works. So I worry about the churches out there that are teaching any form of works that have to do with merit. How do we teach works? They are the natural outflow of true salvation. They are not a part of the salvific work in you. They are the natural outflow of your response. Your response naturally to God apart from Christ is rebellion. Your response to God in Christ naturally are good works. That's their natural response to salvation. It makes no sense that somebody claims salvation and they have no fruit to show for that. Okay. Okay. Back to Romans 4. I believe we're in verse 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Isn't that true? You work two weeks. Your boss owes you a paycheck. And he has no right to say, I'm deciding not to give out paychecks this time around. That's not his to keep, is it? It's yours. You've earned it. You've deserved it. And before you get too happy about this idea of you've earned and deserved your wages, I remind you that Paul will say the wages of your sin is death. You've earned it. You've deserved it, right? But there's a gift of God he talks about, correct? And the gift of God is not a wage, not something you deserve. You just sit there right where you're sitting now and you just receive, right? And if you say, why are you giving me this gift? He'll have nothing to say as far as what you've done. He'll simply say, it's because I love you, right? I give you a gift because I love you. All right. We are on verse 5. But to him who does not work, 
but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, this is why Paul's a master writer. He says, God who justifies who? The ungodly. Okay, do you want to be justified? You got to recognize yourself as being who? The ungodly. That's who he justifies, right? Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance. I came to call sinners to repentance. He says the clean don't need a bath, right? Those who are dirty need a bath, right? Okay. So, and then in that same sentence where he says he justifies the ungodly, says his faith is accounted for righteousness. So how do you jump from ungodly to righteous? Believe in Jesus Christ. How do you jump from ungodly to righteous in God's eyes? Believe in Jesus Christ. Okay. Just as David, so here comes the double whammy of chapter 4. He's nailing us with Abraham, the supreme righteous man of the Old Testament. And now he's saying, some of you, though, might prefer your greatest king, as an example, right? So let's talk about your great king for a second. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. How does he impute righteousness apart from works? David says this, Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So what is this idea of impute or imputation? It simply means to credit the possession of something to someone just by declaring it to them. So, you, so Jesus is declared a sinner because our sins were imputed to him. So God declared Jesus to be sin and declared us to be righteous through that. We're actually the sinner and he's actually the pure one. But God's declaring him to be sin and declaring us to be clean. That's imputation. Okay? Now, how many of you watch The Office? All right, so for those of you, here's some helpful understanding. If you remember when Michael Scott, I can't believe I'm doing this. But if you remember when Michael Scott was encouraged to declare bankruptcy, okay? He actually walked in and thought you had to declare it. So he shouts in front of the office, I declare bankruptcy. And he had to be told by his accountant later, hey, when you declare it like that, nothing happens. Okay, that's not how you do it. Nothing happens just by declaring bankruptcy like that. Well, listen, when God declares you righteous, something does happen. Okay, something does happen when he declares you righteous. Okay, so even though you're a sinner and you'll continue to fall into sin, there's a declaration upon you that you're righteous. That's justification. That's justification. He declares it upon you. Just like he declared his son to be sin and punishes him for it. You can only imagine that. And then he declares us righteous even though we're not. Okay. That should lead to the change of heart that produces the good works that are not a part of your salvation as far as saving you, but they are a part of your salvation as far as the outward proof of the inward reality of your salvation. I hope that made sense because it's a crucial, crucial point. Please ask about that if I didn't make it perfectly clear after we're done. All right. So <clears throat> David goes to uh, Psalm 32. With that, I would like to bring you to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's great psalm of penitence. 
that he wrote after his sin with Bathsheba. And I would like for you to hear when David says, Blessed is a man whose lawless deeds are forgiven. You can feel the weight of his adultery and his stringing Uriah up to be murdered. And that murder was carried out. It's on David's head. He did it. In fact, when he wants to build God a temple, God says, you can't because you're a man of uh, bloodshed. Now, he's a man of bloodshed because he's a king, a warrior king. But that type of killing, God doesn't forbid. He actually will call them to war. The kind of bloodshed that he forbids is the kind he did with Uriah the Hittite. Right? So as David writes Psalm 51, he says this, Have mercy upon me, O God. Now we're talking about being saved. You're justified by grace through faith alone, correct? Now David says, I'm not in a position for grace right now. I'm asking you to have mercy. Because mercy is the avoidance of something bad that you deserve. So David deserves wrath. And he's asking for mercy to avoid that wrath. Grace that we're talking about in chapter 4 is getting good stuff that you haven't merited. You haven't earned or deserved. Okay? So the fact that you're not going to hell one day is God's mercy upon you. The fact that not only you're not going to hell, but you're actually getting heaven is God's grace upon you. Okay? So David's plea here is for mercy. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Notice he doesn't say according to your righteous judgment, right? His righteous judgment would not fare well for David at all, would it? So he says, I need your mercy according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Do you know God offers that to all who call upon him? Every single person who calls upon him for this loving kindness and these tender mercies receive it without exception. All who call upon him. It says, the Lord will not despise a broken and contrite heart. Correct? And that's what we're seeing in David here with this brokenness and contriteness. Now Judas threw the silver on the floor and, and said it's blood money, right? <coughs> but he wasn't forgiven, right? So the, the brokenness and contriteness of heart was not there. It was more the regret of realizing, hey, I did something really wrong here, yet you still kind of justify it. You still kind of like, I did right, but my goodness, this thing is bigger than I thought, right? Okay? That's not brokenness and contriteness. That's, not, that's Esau had real problems with true repentance. Judas had real problems with true repentance. Okay? Um, he says, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. You see this cleansing theme constantly with forgiveness, right? It's sin makes you dirty. Forgiveness makes you clean again. I like to use the example because we've all bought brand new white sneakers before, right? You buy these brand new white sneakers, the first time you wear them, everywhere you step's a really big deal because you don't want to mess up these perfectly white sneakers. Any speck on them ruins the whole entire look. And you're tiptoeing through the tulips, right? You're kind of walking so carefully and nothing happens to them. A year later, you're running through mud puddles, you don't even think twice, right? Because when you're clean, even a little speck makes a huge difference, right? But when you're not clean, then little specks don't bother you anymore. That's why the first time you sinned was the hardest time in that category of sin that you sinned in. 
After that, you can sit in that category easier and easier and easier because you're already dirty, right? Now imagine what the cross felt like to Jesus who was perfectly clean. How excruciating in his purity was him taking on the sin of the world. He didn't do it as an already dirty person. Like the thieves on the cross were already dirty. But he was pure, spotless, holy, and being treated as the Hitlers of the world and the Stalins of the world. Treated as if he were that. All right. Psalm 51. I wanted to go through the whole thing, but it, uh, it's... it's taking longer than I thought. Let's go back to Romans 4. All right. So we have this idea of imputation. Um, David says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. I did want to bring that up. I want you to know the Old Testament idea of sacrifice is that it covered your sins. It didn't completely forgive you. It just covered them because you'd have to come back in a year and do it again. Come back in a year and do it again. Okay, there's a lid on them, but they're not gone. Okay, in Hebrews 10, in Hebrews 10, it says in verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So David's saying, what a blessing when your sins are covered. Now, what does the Bible say about after Jesus? They're not covered. It says they're gone. They're totally removed. That's why you don't have to keep sacrificing Jesus over and over again. Okay, that's our issue with the Eucharist of the Catholic Church, quite frankly, with transubstantiation. That if that's the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, then he was just sacrificed again, literally. If you're literally shedding his blood and breaking his body again every Sunday morning, then he's being sacrificed again. And that's why I personally don't like crucifixes. And I'm sorry if you're wearing one, but he shouldn't still be hanging there. He should be off that cross, right? That's where the victory is. So once, once and for all sacrifice should not be repeated over and over again. Now, Does this, uh, verse 9, does this blessedness that David was talking about, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? Now, it pretty much means Jew and Gentile. Circumcised is the Jew, uncircumcised is the Gentile. So is it just for the Jew or is it for Jew and Gentile? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised? So he's going to say... Hey, if, if Abraham got circumcised and then he was accounted with righteousness, then maybe it's just for the circumcision group. But he's going to make the point that I, I opened with, that he was accounted to righteousness in Genesis 15, and circumcision didn't come about until Genesis 17. So that's the point Paul's making now. He says, how then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So Abraham was an uncircumcised man when he was credited with righteousness. And Paul's saying that's a sign to you that it's for the Gentiles as well, who are now the uncircumcision group. Okay? 
Isn't it amazing how when you're inspired by the Holy Spirit, you can pick up on these details like this? It's amazing. That's why you want to pray for the, the Spirit to be upon you when you read your Bible. Okay? Paul picks up on all these details. Okay? And, we, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised. The righteousness, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who are, who are not only of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So however many years it was, <laughs> between Genesis 15 and 17, Abraham walked uncircumcised, yet declared righteous by God. So saying if he could walk uncircumcised and be declared righteous, so can the Gentiles. Okay. No idea where I'm at my notes. Not any idea at all. All right. All right, verse. So two things are covered in 9 through 12 in that paragraph. Thing one is that It's not for Jews only, it's also for Gentiles. But also, my question then is this. If it was only the boys that got circumcised, how did the girls participate in the covenant? The covenant was, the sign of the covenant was on the boys. So what's the deal with the girls? And why that sign? Because you get people like Christopher Hitchens, the atheists, he, he would always like to say in debates that Judaism and Christianity are religions of Gentile mutilation of children. That sounds pretty awful, doesn't it? Okay. So why is it that sign? Well, the promise, as we just read in Galatians 3, was to Abraham and his seed, Correct. So circumcision becomes upon the organ that delivers the seed. And the cutting of the flesh is the sign of cutting away of sin. So they cut the skin, the fleshly part, away from the organ that delivers the seed because that's where the promise is to the seed, that person and to their seed. You see how it works? Because I'm not going to get much more detailed than that. Okay? All the men just kind of cross their legs a little bit. <laughs> okay? But what about the girls? How are they covered? They're under their father's circumcision. They're covered by their father's circumcision. And then when they get married, they're covered under their husband's circumcision. That's why a father walks the bride down and gives her away. Because he's actually handing the spiritual covering off to the, the husband now. Okay, so she remains covered in those two ways. Now... Verse 13, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath for where there is no law, there's no transgression. So God wouldn't have worked this through law if he's going to also make a promise, he would just have Abraham perform for it and see if he could get to it or not. But 
as you see in the notes, number one, there was no law in Abraham's day. Okay, that came hundreds of years later through Moses. And two, the purpose of the law is to point out sin and the need of redemption. It's not to bring us to righteousness. The law was never designed to make us righteous. It was designed to show us that we can't do it on our own. The reading the law should render you helpless. And in that helplessness, you're going to recognize your need for redemption. And as you recognize your need for redemption, where else are you going to turn but Jesus Christ? <coughs> so the law points you to Christ. 16. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. The point here is that righteousness is according to grace. If it were of law, it would not be of grace, but it'd be a debt that God owes people. So if it was about our works, we could literally look at God and say, you owe me now, right? I did that, so you owe me. And do you know that's the most common answer on the streets of why people say they're going to heaven? I'm a good person. And what they don't realize they're saying is, so God owes me heaven. I've lived a life that there's no other option but to put me in heaven because I did so much good. Okay? It makes God a debtor to us. Verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Now, that's when he changed his name to Abraham. What was his name before that? Abram. Abram means father of many. Now, if you can imagine the dynamic, when Abraham's well, when he would have his land and his well, and foreigners would come to his well to get water and so forth, and of course, conversation would naturally spring up. And what, how do you start talking to strangers? What's your name, right? So he would say, Abram. And what would they hear? Father of many. They'd say, oh, how many kids do you have? He'd say, none. Of any kids. But you're an old man, and your name is father of many. I know, it's kind of embarrassing, actually. Right? It's kind of embarrassing. Okay? Now God names him Abraham, which means father of multitudes of nations. How's he going to explain that at the well? Especially when he gets up to be 99 years old. He's 86 when he finally has Ishmael. And then he's 90, he's 100 when he actually has Isaac. So here's a man who has to walk by faith, correct? Despite the fact that I would think naturally people are going, are you sure you're named properly? Okay. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as if they did exist. Who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. So what just happened there? 
Well, he says several things here, starting in verse 17. It says, he believed God who gives life to the dead. So first of all, somehow Abraham knew God to be a God who gives life to the dead. And he's going to need to know that because in Genesis 22, he's going, to be able, he's going to be asked to sacrifice his beloved son, right? So how does he know that God can give life to the dead? Well, Paul tells us here. He says, because his body was 100 years old and as good as dead. As far as reproduction goes, his body was as good as dead. And Sarah's womb, being 90 years old, was as good as dead. And yet Isaac came from that deadness. So he says he knew God could bring life from death. And remember, God made the promise to Abraham when Abraham was 75. And Sarah was 65. So you, can you imagine being as old as 75 and 65, saying you're going to have a son, and then you turn 80 and you still don't have him. And then you turn 85 and you still don't have him. You turn 95, you still don't have him. And then you turn 99. And what? You still don't have him. It's not until he's 100, right? He's 100 years old when he has him. So what are those 25 years like for Abraham? Verse 19 says this, not being weak in faith. It did not weaken that man's faith. In those 25 years of getting older and older and older, he's saying, but God said so. Yes, Ishmael was a slip up in that. But God said so. He did not consider his own body and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't look at his circumstances. He didn't say, look how old I am. Look how old Sarah is. He's not basing his faith upon his circumstances. Do you know how many times I feel like I need to say that over and over again for my sake and for all of your sakes? We do that all the time. We look at our circumstances and judge God and his abilities based on our circumstances. We decide what he can do and he cannot do based on what we're experiencing that day. Abraham's the hero of the faith because he did not do that and he had 25 years opportunity to do it. He knew God. Listen, he knew God. And circumstances don't change somebody when you know them. Isn't it true that those that you know the best, you could hear something about them and immediately go, that's not true. Or you go, that is true. But because you know them, you know if you you can say if they did something like that or not. Abraham knew God so well that this says he did not waver in his faith, though his body became as good as dead reproductively. For Abraham to be the Abraham that gets mentioned all these thousands of years later on the other side of the world in this sanctuary tonight, to be that man, he had to go 25 years and be a man who would not waver in his faith though he had every reason in the world given to him to waver. That's how he knew God. That's how he knew God. We've got to ask ourselves, how do we know God tonight? It's the same God. It's the same exact God. The same God who will not despise a broken and contrite spirit. The same God who answers everybody who cries out to him. The same God who gives salvation to all who call upon his name. It's the same God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have to go by what we know. We cannot go by how we feel. Okay? 
think I told you last week about the worship leader that started the church service by saying, how does everybody feel today? And the guy that was telling the story was saying, do you have any idea how many people don't feel good at all out there that you just asked that to? What if they answered them honestly in that moment? We feel like garbage. That's a good way to start the worship, right? He says, don't go by how you feel. Go by what you know. You know God. You know his redemption. You know his love. Base your emotions on what you know. Don't base what you know on your emotions. I don't think we would ever be talking about Abraham right now if he went by his emotions. He went by what he knew to be true, and he didn't waver. Once you know it to be true, don't waver. Don't waver on it. Your circumstances will change. The truth will never, ever, ever change. He didn't waver at the promise of God through unbelief. He strengthened in his faith. What's one of the ways to be strengthened in your faith? It says here, he's giving glory to God. Giving, not gave. He's giving, constantly giving glory to God in all circumstances. Did you ever give him glory for your trial? Did you ever hear of a wasted trial in God's people? They're not wasted trials. They're useful trials. I can't explain them all to you, but God could. Do you trust them? Do you know them in a way that you could trust them? Okay. And says he, be, he was fully convinced that what he'd promised, he was able to perform. Fully convinced. But Abraham, you're 100. He can do it. He can do it 100. And, and, and then once Isaac's born to this 100-year-old man, and he knows that the promises are going to go through Isaac, then he can hear, now sacrifice them to me. And Abraham knows, listen, I, and it says, as a burnt offering, do you know what a burnt offering is? You put it on fire until it's consumed. So not only is he going to put a knife in his gut, but then he's going to take his corpse and completely consume it. That's what a burnt offering is. And yet Abraham's convinced, even if I kill him with the knife and completely burn him, his corpse, he'll come down the mountain with me again. That's what he told the servants, right? We will return to you. That's a man of faith. Not, not knife, nor fire, nor anything can make this man waver in his faith. And the God that you're thinking of right now is the same God. It's the same one. Okay? He's able to perform it. And therefore is accounted to him for righteousness. Verse 25, 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. Do you know all the stories of the Bible are for, are for you to know God through those stories? This is how you know God is through these stories of the Bible. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him. Righteousness will be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up, Jesus was delivered up, because of our offenses. So because of our sin, he's delivered up to the cross. And it says, and he was raised from the dead because of our justification. So God wants to justify bringing sinners like me to heaven. So how does he justify it? He says, there's this imputation thing. I'm going to take his sin and I'm going to impute it to my son. 
I'm going to take my son's righteousness and I'm going to impute it to him. Now, if you kind of think of it as roadways, how do, what road does my sin take to get to Jesus? It's called faith. What road does his righteousness take to get to me? It's called faith. Okay? So faith is this energizing agent that allows this imputation to happen. All who come to Jesus in faith are credited with righteousness. Okay? I have a little thing from Martin Luther again. Martin Luther was huge about justification by faith alone. That's why he took on the church like he did. And um, I think it might be my Galatians notes. Hold on one sec. Yeah. So, when talking about how the law killed us and we're, we're made righteous through faith, Martin Luther wrote, the law kills... He says, I was a monk. You know, monks, what sin do they do? You know? He, he says, if ever a man could be saved by monkery, it was I. Determined in discipline and penance, self-torture and self-denial, climbing the holy stairs, when I heard God in my heart say, the righteous man will live by his faith. He said, I was doing all those things. Okay? I was determined to discipline and penance. I was self, I would self-torture, self-denial, climbing the holy stairs. They would climb these stairs on their hands and knees, trying to produce pain to make themselves penitent, penitent for their sin. And then he said, I heard God in my heart say, the righteous man will live by his faith. You're trying to live by these, this, this penance and this punishment of your body for your sin. But the righteous man is going to live by his faith. So when Paul says, you've got to get this doctrine right, Galatians is about justification by faith alone. And when he says, even if an angel of, from heaven tells you differently, tell him he's anathema, you can't get this one wrong. He wants to make sure you get justification by faith alone, through grace alone, 100% right. 100% right. Um, I don't know where I got these stats. I did this a long time ago. But here's what 99% right looks like. Paul wants you to get this gospel 100% right. 99% right looks like this. It's 466,750 flights crashing today. They get 99% of them right, or this year. That's how many will crash this year if they get 99% of them right. It looks like 12 babies given over to the wrong parents from a hospital every day. That's 99% right. Looks like 20,000 drug prescriptions being filled out wrong today. That's 99% right. It's 107 medical procedures being botched today. If they get them 99% right. 99% doesn't cut it in a lot of things, does it? Okay? Paul wants you to get it 100% right. And you go, I'm overwhelmed by that. How do I get this 100% right? It's this. Believe. Okay, your righteousness will come through your belief in Jesus Christ. Your belief will result in trust. Your trust will grow your faith to become unwavering because your faith is not based on your circumstances, is it? So I want to finish in Hebrews 10 because you get such a good and clear picture of the switch from Old Testament sacrifice to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our, our righteousness. 
So I'm going to read it through, and then I'll explain it a little bit, and then I'll take your questions at that point. I'm going to read the first uh, 18 verses of Hebrews 10. It says, For the law, okay, so this is works, right? It says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come. It's all the law was, a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. So year by year they do sacrifices. Nobody ever got to be perfect through, the, through that. For then they would not have ceased, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? Wouldn't the sacrificial system stopped if it made the people perfect? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, now this is unbelievable because you're actually going to get words from Jesus Christ back in the Old Testament. This is Jesus speaking from heaven to his Father in the Old Testament. He says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but rather a body you prepared for me. He says, sacrificial system's not cutting for you, it for you, Father, but you desire to give me a body to be sacrificed. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. There's the consent of Christ to be the ultimate sacrifice. I don't know if this is before time began. Probably not. It must have been when the sacrificial system was going south. And he's saying, these sacrifices you don't desire, but rather a body that you prepare for me. And then it says, and it's written of me in the book, I have come to do your will, O God. There's the willing sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Previously saying, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then God said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus said, he takes away the first that he might establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Remember, it would just cover sins. It says it could never take them away. But this man, of course, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down, that's the position of completed work, right? Sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You're being sanctified, but you're declared perfect. Isn't that incredible? But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said, before, this is the covenant I'll make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, and I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. It's far different than covering them, right? He says, I'll forget about them. Now where there is remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. Where there's remission of these, there's no longer an offering. That's why we no longer offer Jesus Christ up for sacrifice, do we? It's done. What are his famous three words on the cross, ladies and gentlemen? It's finished. It's finished. On your behalf, on my behalf, 
complete work. It's overwhelming if you think about it in the sense of, is there anything that you ever received that you don't want to do something for that person back? There's nothing we can do here. He's done it all. He's done it absolutely everything for us, things we could not possibly do for ourselves. And then he simply says this, please just don't say it's not true. Please don't say it's not for you. Please don't reject it in any way whatsoever. Just accept it. Just believe it. What's the only thing you have to do if somebody drops a billion dollars at your doorstep and says it's yours? What's the only thing you have to do? Not push it away. You'd, be, you'd look silly walking around, look what I did, look what I did, right? All you got to do is receive it. There's nothing to boast about there. You're just not being an idiot, stupid. You receive it. That's salvation. Don't be an idiot. <laughs> be saved. <laughs> okay? It's probably not going to make the church bulletin. But, uh, <laughs> but receive it. It's not, it's not, see, see, this is one of the issues I have with strict Calvinism. As they say, belief, you can't call belief, um, you can't say that you believed. You were given belief. You can't say you believed because then that's a work. The Bible nowhere says that belief is a work. It's just recognizing the goodness of the gift that's given to you. It's not a work. It's just receiving is all, all it is. So hopefully Jesus looked pretty wonderful to you tonight. Okay, let's pray. God, we give you uh, this hour of time. It's yours, but Lord, we ask that you would do more than we could ask or imagine with it. Lord, we ask that we would realize, Lord, I know I need to realize this more and more, that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead abides in us now, Lord. So let us not be handicapped Christians. Let us not be walking around with a power that we never tap into, Lord, but may we manifest the fullness of what you would have us to do. Lord, may we walk in that with full power and authority that you would be known through all the circles of life that we walk in. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we don't, for they are many, and help us to be more unashamed of the gospel than ever before. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 